Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. So, on today's show, I had a chat with acclaimed Walkley Award winning author Delia Falconer about her fourth book, Signs and Wonders Dispatches from a Time of Beauty and Loss. It is a breathtaking collection of 13 essays delving into the ways we understand ourselves in the world, a world weakened by us in what some call the Anthropocene, where human activity has had significant irreparable impact on the planet's ecosystems and where the wonders and terrors of our proximity to this changing earth are almost one and the same. Almost all of these essays touch on the climate crisis somehow or other, on human impact and consumption and legislative neglect and how it's changing the way we live and think, even the way we read and write. Each of these sublime, empathetic and observant essays touches on the anxiety many of us feel as we wade into a hotter future where extreme weather events become terrifyingly normal, but something we must recognise and act on. I mean, while it is enthralling and indeed wondrous, shouldn't it be terrifying that animals are emerging from the permafrost, perfectly preserved 40,000 years after they perished? So I may as well just dive right into it. Here it is. Hi, Delia. Thank you for chatting with me on Backstory today. Hi, Elsie. Thanks for having me. It's been 10 years since your last book, Sydney, was released, which is a part memoir, part guide to Sydney about how the city has changed from the 70s through to today. Your home city features heavily in your latest book too, like a character. So why now, after this time, have you released Signs and Wonders, full of these urgent essays? Hmm. Um, Well, there's a few reasons for that. Uh, The long period between books uh, is because 10 years ago I had twins. Uh, So uh, that has uh, kept me and my partner very, very occupied. Um, But, you know, they're also a part of the reason why I wrote this book. I mean, like most uh, Australian writers, I think, um, at least in conversation, you know, we've well, so many of us are really worried about these issues and, um, you know, worry about the efficacy of fiction and, you know, what to write and what to do. And um, I felt that, you know, this this material really called me and, you know, I, I sort of started writing in this space um, through various essays before I kind of realised, I think, that um, uh, that this could be a book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and because you know it best... Can you tell us a bit about what is contained in Signs and Wonders and what links these pieces? What I wanted to capture in this book was um, the feeling of the, the strangeness, the uncanniness of living in the present. I wanted to really, um, so I, I found that my in my own life I was caught constantly between this sort of feeling of um, or as I say in my, my subtitle of, of beauty and loss and um, you know I think someone said that these days you know with the knowledge of the Anthropocene and the knowledge that you know these cataclysmic almost unthinkable changes uh, and cascading effects and things were kind of going on around us um, you know even the even the beautiful is is often mm-hmm. um, you know a, a sort of a problematic concept that everything's kind of tinged by this presentiment of loss um, and so, you know, I really thought that 
I, you know, obviously I'm really concerned um, and really want us to be, you know, to, to act as um, better people, myself included, uh, in terms of how we treat the environment. But, you know, I think my abilities as a writer are, you know, are accuracy, are noticing. And so every essay that I wrote I wanted to, I realised sort of fell on this kind of pivot of um, beauty and loss um, and I really wanted to capture the, the feeling of being in the present. And, I, you know, I don't know if capturing that is, uh, is going to be you know, a matter of a kind of a, a requiem. Well, this is how it was because things can suck change so incredibly quickly. Or, you know, hopefully it's just a tiny thing I can do that's, you know, a little bit useful in terms of just saying, well, here's what's, you know, here's what's going on. This is, this is you know, we're faced with what's almost unthinkable but, here are some of the ways that other people have thought about it and written about it, and this is how best I can think about it. Beautiful. Um, I, I actually wondered if you could explain to us the great acceleration you discuss. Okay. Um, well, I hadn't. I mean, the thing about this moment is that I think our knowledge of it has come so swiftly. I mean, you know, I grew up with a mother who was um, you know, very concerned uh, with the environment. I used to read wildlife magazines, you know, the Armand Dennis magazines when I was a kid. So I've always had had a concern that way. But even I, you know, with all that sort of um, past kind of knowledge and, and interest, um, was just so shocked when I went to a conference in 2014, um, which was the first um, Anthropocene uh, conference for the humanities um, in Australia and Canberra. And that was another word that I hadn't really heard, this, this amazing, you know, sort of terrifying concept that in, in not entirely uncontroversial and not entirely ratified, but this idea that um, human beings had become a um, human activity had become a geological force that was actually, actually moved us into a, a new geological era. But Tom, um, um, Tom Griffiths, the Australian uh, environmental historian, fabulous historian, showed these graphs um, you know, mm-hmm. etched into my mind from sitting in that lecture room where about, 50, about 1950, um, probably, you know, as a result of kind of, you know, world gearing up after after World War II, we just, we just start to have, um, or I should say, carbon, you know, carbon-addicted big global economies start to have, that take this toll on the, on the earth. And so the Great Acceleration maps 24 different dials on what they call the human dashboard, which is, you know, the uses um, and the effects. So things like CO2, you know, deforestation, CO2 in the atmosphere. And these things start to kind of move quite swiftly upwards um, from about 1950 onward. But then about, ni- about 1990, they just all, it's called the hockey stick effect, they all just start to go off scale and and the really terrifying thing about this I, I sort of you know, I was terrified enough and I think that was one of the things that was really driving me in writing this book but they that they were put together in um 2000 around about 2010 I think was the last time that these um graphs were put together and they were already starting to go off scale and for me it's that you know and I think we're feeling it and I think that we need to express it and need it to be made, you know, quite quite graphic. Um, is this feeling that the, you know, that the, the earth systems, which were so miraculous and so self-sustaining and which have been, you know, damaged and drained for such a long time, were 
reacting in ways that were kind of predictable, but now we are dealing with um, cascading effects and things starting to, and feedback systems and things starting to go off scale. And so, you know, of course, you know, last in the last couple of years, we've seen um, the almost all of the eastern seaboard of Australia burned in, in the big fires and we've seen coronavirus, which are two sort of instances, I think, of this feeling that things can kind of now change on a dime. Yeah, um, in your first essay, the book's namesake, Signs and Wonders, you question whether our sense of wonder at the universe and the things we see online, like images of extinct animals emerging after thousands of years from the Arctic permafrost, could be a sort of self-administered anaesthetic where we tell ourselves what we witness in a drastically altered climate is rare or exciting. Can you tell me a little bit more about this as well? Well, that particular essay came out of a moment of, um, you know, I'm a huge walker and, you know, the privilege of working um, from home all day on Gadigal land is that um, I can, you know, I, I walk a lot. And so, um, you know, on one of my walks, uh, incredible, one of the most beautiful walks in Australia, I would walk down to um, Mrs. Corrie's Point, um, um, through Woolloomooloo, so back of the Botanic Gardens in Sydney. And, I, you know, I always sort of, you know, I can't, I'm a poker and a prodder and a starer and, you know, I always <laughs> and stop and look into, you know, whatever natural things going on. I always stop to look at the fish. And um, that day uh, there were no fish to see. And, you know, I found myself thinking, well, usually I would think, oh, well, you know, they're seasonal. Maybe they're just not, you know, they don't come into the harbour as much in, in winter and, and so on. And this time I just thought, oh, you know, maybe there aren't any fish to see. And then I, you know, started to think about whether, you know, whether what I was seeing was a, you know, a sign of catastrophe or just sort of business as normal. Um, and so I had this incredible walk where I was kind of walking around thinking, I feel, I feel like I'm in an age of signs and wonders. Mm. And, you know, I don't feel that I'm that removed from the ancients who used to you know, look at the guts of animals or look at birds and animals out of place to predict the future. But, of course, the difference is that they were trying to work out what the gods will was and we're sort of, you know, looking at this awful sort of mirror effect. Um, and so, you know, I got really obsessed with um, also with then kind of collecting and cataloguing all the kind of wonders that just, um, you know, just crossed through my um, screen in my sort of screen, through my hand and my screen-addicted life. Um, and, you know, as you said, there was things like, you know, the, the animals appearing out of the permafrost and um, Viking swords um, and hunger stones appearing out of the, the rivers in, um, in the historic northern um, hemisphere drought of 2018, um, you know, and parch marks. The the you know the, the earth was so dry that you were seeing the the shapes of um, Neolithic villages suddenly just inscribed on the landscape. Just this extraordinary moment of the earth kind of you know speaking to us. Um, but you know, it's so easy to just just kind of you know that the nature of life is to go oh you know <laughs> there's parch mark and there's some hunger stones and you know there's sea slugs that look like David Bowie or Blockensfield <laughs> playing you know Queen's Bohemian <laughs> Rhapsody. And it's um you know so 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 you know there were quite a few nature books around that. <laughs> And it's kind of a tradition, I think, particularly of European um, Northern Hemisphere nature writing, which, of course, is what we mostly digest if you walk into any bookstore. Um, you know, a lot of these books say, oh, well, if we could just understand how, you know, truly wondrous whales are or, you know, whatever, um, you know, whatever sort of creature 
or landscape is being chosen, you know, which, which is partly true. I mean, you have to love something to want to save it. But there's this, you know, they often kind of stop at that point of saying, well, if we, you know, um, if we really feel how wondrous uh, the world is, um, you know, we'll, we'll want to save it. And I just thought, no, I think wonder, you know, <laughs> continuous kind of wonder at things sort of, you know, flying mm. through um, our screens is perhaps part of the problem. And I wanted to kind of sit back, I guess, and look at what people had written and thought um, and think about what I thought about, um, you know, about this sort of moment, try and get a kind of like a, you know, a meta view. Um, don't want to sound too grand about it. But I just want to kind of take that step back mm. and not wonder. Or if I was going to wonder, I was going to, you know, wonder about wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I wondered if you ever did feel shock at pulling together these incredible bits of information, sort of the cruel irony of humanity's own making, you know. <laughs> did you feel shock pulling them all together and sort of having them, you know, in this one essay here in front of you? Or it's all throughout the book, but in this piece yeah, particularly. I mean, it's just there are things that kind of, um, you know, you, and it's that weird thing because we kind of know a lot of this stuff and it's, you know, almost inescapable at the moment with the, you know, latest IPCC, you know, report and, um, you know, on, on, on climate heating and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, it's kind of hard to avoid. But I think the, the detail that one of the, <laughs> one of the details that really um, struck me um, was, you know, we take, coal so much for granted and you know I wanted to write an essay that kind of looked at what a strange you know haunting um weird thing it was which was the essay an unnatural history of coal but what I hadn't kind of realized about coal you know you know I knew it was you know carbon you know had been stored from ancient forests and swamps and, and so forth but every layer in coal is actually a little um sort of mark of sea rise because what what soaked the swamps was, you know, they were in shallow seas and you had glaciers that were heating and, you know, then reforming. And every time that happened, you know, the, the, the carboniferous forests would be, um, would be flattened and covered over and then start to rot. And so, you know, the, the, I think the profundity of this stuff is, um, you know, it really, it's so easy to kind of keep well, less and less easy these days, but, you know, you get sort of caught up in the rush of life, but then you stop and you think about, you know, detail like that one and it just, uh, yeah, it, it stops you in your tracks. <laughs> it certainly does. Delia, I learnt a lot about coal and its place in Australian history in your second essay. Um, I had no idea Sydney once had a coal mine beneath it. Can you tell me a bit about this piece from Sean the Prawn to the Miners' Highway to how you feel thinking about Scott Morrison brandishing that infamous piece of coal in Sean Le Prawn's parliament to COP26 to the IPCC report. Yeah, you've touched on it a bit there, but this piece was incredible. Well, I already knew how I felt about Scott Morrison and his piece of coal, and that didn't really, that didn't really change uh, throughout writing the essay. But um, I really wanted to, you know, one of the things that really struck me about the Great Acceleration is that, you know, I, I was born in 1966, so, you know, my, my life's, life has covered, you know, quite a bit of it, um, not as back as far as 1950, but, you know, a lot of it. Um, and so I thought, you know, again, these things are such sort of big scale, um, you know, big scale issues and, and um, you know, cover such, you know, <laughs> extraordinary periods of time that, you know, I, I thought I, much as I'm not a, 
an autobiographical writer by inclination. You know, I'm the, you know, I'm, I can be a measure. My life can be a measure. Um, and so um, that essay came out of taking my children to um, Parliament House in Canberra. Uh, my son is obsessed with the political process. <laughs> I thought it was great. So that, that, Good that on story. him. <laughs> um, but, um, yes. <laughs> Um, and so what they what they do um, is that they they hand the kids a little um, children's trail brochure, and in that they say, "Go and look for Sean McCrawn in the um, black um, uh, black the black marble of the um, of of the um, Great Hall entrance, actually kind of near the stairs." And uh, so you go looking for it, and then um, I just started thinking about how that. Uh, the black in that stone was carbon. That's what had created the colour. And, you know, and as I sort of thought about it and researched it more, that, you know, Sean Braun was, um, you know, formed at the same time as, as most coal reserves in the world, not so much ours, um, which are formed in the, mostly formed in the Permian period, um, it's from a different sort of point on the earth. But, um, you know, most, you know, most, most sort of carbon, uh, most coal came from that sort of period. And so, there was this other fact that had been floating in my head for a long time that never, you know, it's what writers are like, you never kind of know what to do with this stuff, but you just kind of collect it. Um, and I just remember being really, really struck um, by the story that um, Captain Cook uh, made his voyages to Australia on a reconditioned um, uh, mm. coal carrier. Um, and I just thought that is, oh, how, how is that not central to, you know, the way that we sort of tell environmental history in Australia? Because it's just not mentioned. I thought, I don't remember learning that. It's gone for all, you know, it's from the very beginning before, you know, before invasion, yeah. you know, we were already in a kind of a coal economy. <laughs> and that was, you know, that preceded, um, preceded coming to Australia. And I just thought that was extraordinary. So I started to kind of piece together uh, those sort of connections. Of course, um, Scott Morrison is the is the federal member for Cook as well, almost <laughs> to sort of uh, yeah. away. Um, but yeah, it's um, and so then I just started, you know, thinking about all the, you know, I wanted to find all these stories, you know, about the, the weirdness of coal. So, you know, Victorian stories about, you know, coal sprites coming alive and, you know, taking, um, taking you know, characters and they're flashing <laughs> down into, you know, the sort of the, the um, primeval swamps um, to look at the power of coal or, um, you know, personal stories that I kind of knew about. Um, you know, people who, you know, whose families were still living on coal wealth here. Um, and I sort of just wanted to piece them together into, into a, a kind of a, a mosaic um, that would really estrange coal, really make it, um, you know, make it the, the sort of weird thing it is. Um, but, of course, you know, there, there are our politicians um, making decisions uh, that will impact for you know a, you know geological mm. era or more um, you know near this little carboniferous um, figure which you know I don't want to sort of spoil mm. the essay too much but actually is a prawn <laughs> um, and so um, I was outraged when I, I discovered that and sort of outraged on my children's behalf that um, you know that this story of um you know of 
for children uh, in our seat of power uh, was not um, was not um, true either. So um, you know that's perhaps not surprising. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, so so that's that's where that one came from. Was it? You write so poetically about coal. You know, it's hard to imagine that it's um sort of the root of all of our of our issues right now um, that we're mm. facing going into the future. Mm. Did you find there were beautiful lines um, you quoted? Uh, there was a quote about um, coal being the trapped sunlight um, from, you know, centuries before. Uh, yeah, was it kind of funny to to read about it and write about it so poetically? Um, oh, look, you know, I, um, I wanted to write a book that was uh, not only mm. Jeremiah, I wanted it to be, um, <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, I think that this stuff deserves a, you know, a, a writerly treatment. Um, and there are plenty of other books out there that are, you know, Jeremiah's and polemics, and they're really necessary as well. Um, but, um, yeah, look, and I wouldn't say that I thought I was writing it in a particularly, you know, self-consciously poetic mm. sort of way either. Um, I just, you know, with all of these essays, I just, you know, I wanted them to be quite varied and I wanted to, you know, just follow the thread, um, the, you know, the thread that I saw. Um, you know, I mean, and that stuff is, uh, you know, an insane mm. sort of poetry, like um, uh, David Farrier's book Footprints, which is about, kind of what humans are going to leave behind them in thousands of years. He talks about the fact that there are the, the, the seabed um, on the main, um, the main shipping routes uh, is covered with these clinker highways. So the used coal the ships would um, toss out, um, that they'd burned the steamships is, you know, it's there beneath the water in these kind of paths. I mean, you know, that's that's poetic, you know, it's horrible, but it has a, um, uh, you know, I think that, again, it's so easy to um, live in a world where we kind of think of things as sort of, you know, glamorous and slippery and, um, you know, um, uh, you know, we're just kind of, you know, moving through. And, um, you know, I, I kind of think that, the, you know, it's important to sort of pause and, um, you know, I wanted something that kind of was a bit, to write something that was a bit slower and a bit, um, yeah, a, a, a bit of, you know, it's a, a bit sort of arresting, I suppose. Oh, and it is, it really is. Uh, there are, I sent lots of photos uh, as I was reading to many different people going, look at this mic drop. It was just, it, <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, I wondered if it was a conscious decision to place your essay, Terror from the Air, Fire Diary 2019 to 20, in which you write about the experience of those, of witnessing those devastating, like apocalyptic summer fires that we had, um, which for many people woke them up to the reality of a heated world. Right after mm. your essay on coal, was that a was that a conscious decision? Oh, look, um, again, um, it was a gut decision, um, and that essay, or kind of di- you know, sort of long diary, it was a really hard one to place in the book because you know it's pretty tough stuff, and and you know I wasn't even well, you know a few days where I was quite close to the fires, but. So many people, you know, really um, suffered and they were, you know, unbelievably terrifying. Um, Danielle Selemeyer in her book Summertime writes, 
you know, amazingly about the, you know, being being sort of a bit closer and the way that the air ignites, you know, it's so hot that the air is actually catching fire, you know, mm. um, and sort of ripping ripping through. Um, and so, you know, my my experience was more about just again that that horrible feeling of you know living somewhere that's so familiar I mean this is as you say this is a city that Sydney is a city that I've written a book about um and about its moods and and you know there were things about Sydney that you know it's a very change changing city uh but there were things that you know I would have thought until then were going to be not permanent, but around for quite some time. And that would be, you know, the humid air, uh, that kind of lovely rotty sort of what I call kind of umami smell, the, mm. the southerly busters that come in on an afternoon. The southerly stopped, oh. you know, that was just the summer southerly stopped during the mostly during the um, uh, the air was dry during these fires. And of course, it was brown. And uh, that absolute, you know, I'd read a lot about solastalgia, you know, which is that term that um, Glenn Albrecht came up with, which is nostalgia for somewhere that where you actually are because of the, you know, because of the way that um, uh, the environment's changing. But uh, I just, you know, uh, hit me with absolute full force. It was so distressing, um, absolutely traumatic. <laughs> Every time I, and, and, and you know, I, I have less um, <laughs> call to, you know, to, to feel traumatised than, than many people. But Every time I went back into that essay and also had to, that diary and had to go back into um, all the things that we read and, and looked at, which almost seemed to have kind of slipped into, into, the, into the past now, um, you know, into, into sort of a deep past. But, you know, beekeepers, um, older beekeepers going in to check their hives after the fires first because um, to save the younger beekeepers from, um, you know, from hearing the oh. it's going to it breaks me up, but to hear the um, the cries of the wildlife that was so burned. I mean, you know, um, yeah. So um, that's a hard essay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hard, hard piece of diary to write, um, and it was a hard one to place because I didn't want to kind of put it at the very end. <laughs> collection because uh that just seemed too much I didn't want to put the very you know the very very start but yeah it's uh so no I didn't so I was sort of thinking about those things about the emotional flow of the book I suppose you know rather than that one speaking back directly to to the other essay it really does it sits beautifully um and that line I find myself thinking that we are Chernobyl to the New Zealand Scandinavia was powerful Mm -hmm. I'd love to ask you about your essay birds I, I did cry at its close, um, truthfully. But <laughs> firstly, I never thought I'd imagine a T-Rex with feathers. But here we are. Mm. In this piece, you talk about how we struggle to perceive dinosaurs as intelligent because it disrupts the way we understand evolution and where humanity st- sits in that scheme. You humanise this feeling, I think, by talking about how strange it is to see old photographs of your mum as a whole person mm. before you existed and about how your kids perceive you. Disrupting memories of who our parents are. Tell me about drawing this link. Um, oh, this is the essay I struggled with right up to the very end because uh, the paleontology is <laughs> so difficult to grasp, mm. uh, which I think I kind of did in the end. Um, but um, I, it was the last essay that I wrote in the book actually and I just, and it's interesting when the landing lights kind of come on and 
um, you know, again, I thought I'm just writing about an essay about birds. I'm, I didn't think I was writing about my mum. I'd still be thinking about um, <laughs> trying to to write that, um, you know, and do her just do it justice if if that was the case. And I thought, oh, just I know I know what's missing from this book, birds. Um, and I started to write about um, just the sheer um, joy of and consolation of birds, uh, feeding them with my mother, um, you know, and that's what we would do rather than, you know, have deep conversations about things in sort of moments. Of we'd go out there and be on her back veranda with the mincemeat or whatever, which I know is not a fabulous thing to do, so I'm, I'm aware of that. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I started to think about how, um, so many people, for so many people, birds are very special and they've always had a really talismanic uh, sort of quality for me. And of all the things that I watch on my walks in Sydney, it's the birds and it's the, the cockatoos for me in particular that just, I just, I just adore them. I love them. Uh, such larrikins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I kept thinking, and then I, and then I just had that moment where I thought, well, um, you know, why do we have that connection? And so I did a bit of research about history birds and they're just so much older than we are in their modern form. So, you know, there are birds that look, um, you know, kind of a bit similar to uh, maybe some sort of sandpiper that are on the beaches of what of, of what is now Belgium um, about um, more than 65 million years ago uh, um, in recognisable form. Uh, you know, when we were little, you know, um, nocturnal shrews, <laughs> you know, that's, how we, that's how we survived the um, HEB, uh, um, uh, but the KPG um, um, collision of the Chicxulub um, uh, crater, comet with the Earth, which, you know, killed off um, about three quarters of the world's living things because we were probably hiding, you know. Birds had beaks where they could, um, you know, and and, and intelligence um, and, and um, you know, they could survive on the, the kind of the charred seeds and things that were left. And we were probably, you know, hiding in little clefts. Um, and I think that there's some part of us that perhaps still, you know, still feels that on some sort of really deep level. But, you know, again, I think uh, not that I want to get caught up in the, you know, the discourse of wonder, but, you know, that the fact that feathers sort of pre-exist flight was something that I found very fascinating. And, again, there's this human sort of egotism that likes to think like we think about our mothers, that evolution kind of leads to us. It was all about getting to, you know, this point. And as far as I understand bird evolution, which is incredibly <laughs> difficult and it's missing, that feathers, uh, the ability to fly um, has developed and been lost about four times, that people talk about um, bird evolution as being more like a kind of clumped bush than a, than a, than a sort of a, a tree of distinct descent. And it's just, you know, I suppose it's very sort of humbling for the, for the human species to well, hopefully humbling to sort of think about that. Mm. But it also, I love that history because it turns around, um, you know, the idea that you know, got us in this mess in the first place, that, you know, humans are exceptional and, you know, the world should bend to us. Yes, <laughs> it really, it really, uh, uh, you managed to communicate to me the complexity of it and I haven't got a science brain, so thank you. Um, yeah. Neither have I, there's the secret. <laughs> <laughs> Fake it till you make it. Um, right. uh, I just wanted to, there are so many reasons people should read this book. There are great essays on the disappearance of the paragraph and um, on uh, James Wood's hysterical realism 
but I just I really wanted to end on glamour Mm. you you talk about it a lot you write glamour I think may be our most powerful and fatal fiction the one that kills us all what does glamour Mm. have to do with all of this well, you know, it came out, this came out of thinking about, you know, what what work novels can do in the world. And, um, you know, I do, I do think they do important work and writing does important work. But I kept thinking about, you know, the vast world of travel magazines and advertising and, you know, makeover shows, all of which are kind of geared around glamour, this idea that the world is that we can always find a little kind of perfect corner for those of us, you know, in the neoliberal economy who, you know, beat everyone else to it. You know, you can always zhuzh a space that's not, you know, or an appearance that's not quite right, that, you know, things are always sort of fixable and endlessly replenishable. And, you know, in one of my essays on um, Sylvester, the seal who turned up in my local park, 200 kilo fur seal, you know, I find myself thinking about the fact that, you know, perhaps there are more images of animals circulating, you know, now that we've killed, uh, you know, sort of about 70% of them, uh, wild animals on there, there's possibly more circulating again in this kind of timeless sort of uh, world where there's always, you know, there's always a hiding place. There's always a, you know, a refuge for those who try enough or, you know, succeed enough. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, so, you know, I think of my essays at their best when they're working, hopefully, as being kind of, you know, de-glamouring that I'm trying to get away from that sort of spell, you know, had that origin in Scottish, the Scottish language, to glamour someone was to cast a spell on them. Um, And, um, you know, I really wanted to kind of get away from that and just try to sit with, um, you know, as Donna Haraway says, to stay with the trouble, to sit with that. Um, But, uh, you know, but also to, you know, I think looking at the natural world, as I also do in the essays, is, you know, for me, um, I'm not not very into glamour. Mm. Um, you know, it always strikes me that when you really sit and look at um, natural processes in the world, whether it's birds or anything else, for me, it's always always seems like there's much more going on than um, you know than, than there is in um, you know in that universe of glamour. Mm. It always seems like the more interesting place to be. It certainly does, and what a wonderful uh, note to finish on. You're listening to Triple R. My name is Elsie Lange and I have been talking to Delia Falconer about her beautiful new book, Signs and Wonders, Dispatches from a Time of Beauty and Loss. Thank you so much for chatting with us, Delia. Well, thank you so much for having me. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Twitter.